Preferred Capital Funding presents the Result Podcast, a podcast where trial lawyers share a recent verdict or settlement and discuss how they achieved the result. And now a few words from Jason Abraham of Hupie and Abraham about how Preferred Capital has helped him and his clients. Hi, Jason Abraham here from Hupie and Abraham. I've had the pleasure of representing over 70,000 people in our career in automobile accidents, motorcycle accidents and the like. And I have found preferred capital funding to be so beneficial to our clients when they have a loan issue, especially here in Wisconsin with the change in the law that would allow these loans to be discoverable and individual actions and insurance companies and their lawyers even trying to bring in the loan company as a party to the lawsuit. With the loans by preferred capital funding, we do not have to list them in discovery. There are no issues that they're going to be brought into the cases. Their staff is easy to deal with. And so I would highly recommend preferred capital funding to your clients if they need a loan. Today, the result is pleased to welcome attorney Dave Meyer of Meyer & Wilson, headquartered in Columbus, Ohio. Dave is nationally known for representing investors who have been victims of investment fraud. Dave has also made history winning the largest jury verdict in Ohio's history of $261 million against Prudential Securities on behalf of more than 200 retirees. Dave has been recognized as Lawyer of the Year by U.S. News, among other awards and recognitions, and is currently in leadership in both the Public Investors Advocate Bar Association and the Ohio Association for Justice. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jason. It's great to be here. Well, as we do on every episode, let's start at the end. What was the result of the case we'll be talking about today? So the case we're going to be talking about is actually a series of cases. There's about 15 individual clients, all retirees, who I represented against in, uh, one broker in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, but the first case is the one we're going to talk about. And the settlement uh, prior to the final hearing was just over $900,000. Tell us about the case. So this is a gentleman, and, and this is very similar to a, a, a typical model client that's uh, referred to my office. This gentleman was 68 years old. He had been retired for three or four years. Uh, he was living on a modest pension and his uh, Social Security benefits. His wife passed away, and he inherited uh, her retirement, which is just under a million dollars, and he had no prior experience with a uh, investment advisor or stockbroker. So he hired someone that was referred to him by a family member and he transferred all of the, the entire amount of his inheritance, about a million dollars, transferred to this advisor. And this advisor did something that we actually see quite often is, is set up the client for uh, online statements so the client wouldn't be receiving paper statements. But this gentleman wasn't particularly computer savvy. He didn't use online access to his financial records. So he never actually activated and signed up. So he never got the statements. Uh, and this uh, broker took advantage of that and ended up investing this uh, retiree in just a tremendous amount of, of risky investments, stocks, trading in and out daily. Uh, opening up multiple accounts to try to hide the uh, absolutely wild trading from his supervisors. He opened up margin accounts, which means he was borrowing money for this retiree on his behalf, paying interest uh, on this money. And ultimately, just in the five years 
uh, that the advisor was working with this individual uh, retiree, the broker generated over $400,000 in commissions. Just imagine that. With $900,000 invested, the broker was able to generate $400,000 in commissions and lost the majority, uh, the vast majority of the money. So at the end of the day, once this individual was referred to me, they had less than $25,000 left in the, in the account. So we took that case and, and filed it uh, in mandatory arbitration. A lot of people don't know that when you sign up with a stockbroker anywhere in the country, you sign an opening account document on the back of page three or four in small print that nobody reads, there's a provision whereby in, in order for you to open the account and invest money with that, with that brokerage firm, you have to agree that any dispute that you ever have in the future is going to be through mandatory arbitration. So you give up your right to go to, to go to trial, go to court, and you file in mandatory arbitration. That arbitration process is run by the securities regulators, and that's what I do. So we're, we're plaintiffs securities lawyers that represent individuals in, in arbitration. Uh, and, and that arbitration is mandatory. It's been upheld by the Supreme Court for 30 years now. So there's, there's no way to get around that. But we filed that case. It's akin to litigation. There's different rules and different processes. But at the end of the day, prior to what's called the final hearing, that's the name for the trial, uh, we were able to settle this case. And we ultimately have settled about 12 other uh, cases against this particular advisor for very similar conduct, all of whom, all of my clients were retirees that suffered devastating losses with this advisor, and we were able to get uh, great results for all of them. We have a couple still pending. The securities fraud cases are really unique, and it's uh, definitely uh, something different than what we've typically talked about on this podcast. Kind of walk me through how you approach these cases and how you initially got involved in doing this specific kind of work, to be honest. Well, I got involved, so I've been doing this a little over 20 years. Uh, and the first case was a case that you mentioned at the introduction was a case that turned out to be the class action against Prudential. So I was working at a small firm. I was actually a tax lawyer for about two weeks. Uh, and then that case came into my firm. I was able to uh, take the case and that case took seven years, but that's how I got into uh, and representing individual investors against brokers. That case started, I left my firm, started my own firm in 1999. I've been doing this now for, you know, for a little over 20 years. Uh, but these cases, as you mentioned, Jason, are, are, are much different. So since you, you don't go to court, you don't file a lawsuit, this practice is a nationwide practice for us because we're not bound, since we're not going to court, we're doing this through arbitration, which is administrated on a national basis. So we do these cases from all over the country. So the first step when we get calls, and generally most of the cases that are referred to my firm are referred by the, the individual client's uh, trusted lawyer, their new broker, their accountant, someone uh, who, who I call their trusted advisors may, might see a problem uh, with the account, with the client's taxes, um, whether there may be a state planning documents being prepared, or maybe that the client had the individual person has passed away and now their kids or spouses are looking at the accounts and, and raise a concern. So when I get the case, the first thing we do is we just talk through who the advisor is, because a, a lot of this comes down to who the individual uh, stockbroker is. And we're able to look that person up. There's some online tools where we can see if there's been any prior uh, complaints, any regulatory problems, what, whether the firm they're working for actually has any money. A lot of folks, a lot of these brokers work for tiny firms that, that aren't collectible. So that's, you know, that's a problem. That's the first thing we looked at is the viability 
of the prospective uh, target. Uh, and then we dig into the statements. Sometimes people send us uh, just years and years and years of statements. We get them in trash bags. We get them in Rubbermaid containers. Uh, but my team and I uh, just dig in through the, the statements. So uh, much like a, a typical plaintiff's practice, these case reviews are, are there's no, we don't charge for that. Uh, but there's just a tremendous amount of work done because we have to go through all the statements. Oftentimes we have to use one of our experts to do an analysis so we can evaluate uh, you know, what happened in the account? How long was the account live uh, with the advisor? Were, were there losses? Were, you know, what, what actually were the holdings? Um, and that, that can take some time. And then at the end, you know, if we believe there was misconduct, whether there was, was negligence, maybe there was inappropriate investments, maybe there was failure to disclose risks, whatever it may be, uh, there's certain criteria that we use to evaluate whether a case is viable. And if we think this is, is, is something that we can handle, if we think there were losses caused by the mis misconduct of the advisor, we'll agree to represent the client, contingency fee, and then we file the case. And then, you know, there's a, there's a whole different book of rules for FINRA arbitration versus court cases. So if a lawyer that, you know, wants to get into this, he's going to make sure that, that they spend the time to learn the rules of the game. Uh, there's just a whole rule. There's an entire book of rules, as we say, for FINRA arbitration, whether it's arbitrator selection, the discovery, uh, how to put together a claim, where to file. Uh, and then, of course, we got, you know, the whole issue with, with experts and, and all that, just like any other kind of niche practice, uh, you know, making sure that uh, everyone dots their I's and crosses their T's. The case takes about 12 to 14 months. Uh, one of the benefits of arbitration over court is that the, ultimately when the, when the hearing's resolved, it's about 12 or 14 months, that decision's final. There's very, very narrow grounds to appeal a FINRA arbitration world. So most of my cases are resolved in 12 to 14 months. And again, that's you know, much quicker than a lot of court cases. Uh, and the expenses uh, in, this case, in cases like this run about ten dollars to $50,000, depending on the case. Obviously, there's some that are more, but uh, typically we're, we're hiring an expert. And then, of course, if we have to try the case, uh, there's travel expenses and, and, and those related items. And then the report, the costs required to do the uh, damage analysis on the front end, that's several thousand dollars as well. So that's the case basically from start to finish, Jason. Let's go back now to the $900,000 result you received. So your the documents come in, you start to sift through them. At what point do you know that there's a problem? Like I have to assume that there's a common thread in these cases that obviously you know what to look for when going through the documentation they come in. But is there like a standard aha moment in going through these? Well, this this case that we just mentioned, I mean, just seeing the stack of confirmations and the trades, knowing that there are thousands of trades in a retiree's accounts over five years, then, I mean, I, it took two seconds to know that there's a problem in this account. Now, now digging into it and figuring out what kind of, what kind of positions were bought, how, how long were they held, uh, digging into the commissions, uh, you know, that takes a little bit more time. But just seeing the dramatic trading and the significant decline in the portfolio, the lack of communication with the customer. And then once we get into discovery, we, we dig into the, the supervision aspects, the compliance failures, um, and you know, there's, a, there's a lot of detail there, but it's just a matter of looking at the statements, realizing that there's a significant problem. And then once you file the claim and get into discovery, that's where the real rubber meets the road with digging into the, the supervision uh, issues on, uh, you know, on the side of the brokerage firm. Let me flip this over the other way. Because securities fraud is a different, entirely different set of rules, an entirely different approach, 
what is the most common mistake you see with attorneys who may not be familiar with the rule book and try to take on one of these cases? Like what, what is something people should look to avoid? So this is the call I get probably twice a month is, Hey David, you know, whether they might've referred a case to me earlier or they saw me uh, speak at a, at, at a seminar, you know, I know you do kind of the, this kind of work, David, I had a former client call me and they lost money and, and I just figured, Hey, it's a stock market and stocks go up, stocks go down and then you can do about it. But would you take a look at it? So a lot of people believe that just by the nature of investing with an advisor in the stock market, that it's caveat emptor, it's buyer beware, and that whatever happens, happens. That's not how the securities industry works. Advisors have an obligation to recommend an appropriate investment strategy for everyone based on their income, their assets, their prior investment experience, and their risk tolerance. So just because people lose money, uh, you know, the court, losing money alone doesn't mean you have a case. Obviously, you can't sue a financial advisor just because you have to, just because you lost money. There has to be an underlying cause for misconduct on behalf of the advisor or the brokerage firm. But at the same time, a lot of people believe that, hey, if you suffer losses in the investments, that's the risk that you take by hiring an advisor. And that's just not true. The majority of our uh, listenership are other attorneys, but uh, obviously most of those attorneys, if not all, are going to be involved in the stock market in some way, shape, or form. What are kind of your top couple tips for people when maybe selecting an advisor or what to look for to make sure they don't yep. have this kind of thing going on in their life? So that's a great question. And Jason, I'm writing a book that'll be published in a couple of months. So uh, recommend that everyone read the book. It's called The Investor Protector. But before the book comes out, and this will be a big part of the book, is what can you do to, to avoid ever having this problem? And there's one thing that it takes 10 minutes and you can do it from the comfort of your own living room, and you can do it in your pajamas if you want. But if everyone did this before hiring an advisor, then the amount of cases that would come to my office would be reduced significantly, and I would love that. So the one, and this, all they got to do is look up their advisor online. You could go to brokercheck.org. It's an online database of every financial advisor in the country, and it's the only profession industry that I'm aware of uh, where you could actually go online and look look up your broker, see if they have any prior complaints against them, see if they have any regulatory complaints against them. It's it's really the only profession that I'm aware of that you can do that. It's not perfect, and there are ways that the industry manipulates the data. Uh, so and and we're fighting hard as investor advocates to to try to limit that uh, those issues. But it, for the most part. It's, it's a lot better than having nothing, and most people never do it. The first thing I mentioned, Jason, that when a call, when a call comes in on a potential, potential client, I, this is what I do. Uh, but by the time they come to me, it's too late. Go to brokercheck.org, type in the name of your advisor, the, lo the location, and the brokerage firm where they work, and you're going to pull up what's called a CRD report. And that report will tell you uh, whether there's been any prior customer complaints against that broker and whether there's been any regulatory actions taken against them. Again, with the caveat that it's not perfect, uh, if you pull up that broker and you see there's 20 customer complaints, then you'll want to run away. That's the first best tip that everyone should do before hiring an advisor. What's the one thing people don't think about that they should when they've engaged an advisor and think things might be going sideways? Well, the one thing everyone needs to make sure they understand is how is the advisor being paid? 
Uh, it's very opaque. Uh, it's hidden for a reason by the industry because they don't want you to. It's the only place you can go where you don't know how much anything costs. You go buy a refrigerator and the price is right on the front, right? Well, you go hire an advisor and you have no idea for the most part how they're getting paid. So understand how they're getting paid uh, is, is a big step. And then just making sure that you get your statements, you, and whether it's online or in the mail, you open them up and that you have an understanding. You don't need to understand every single detail, but you, uh, you got to understand to the best you can or have somebody, whether it's a, a family friend or a trusted advisor, an accountant, uh, make sure they understand, you can understand generally what you're invested in and where your money is. That's great information, Dave. Is there anything that you think we've missed or you want to go over before we wrap this up? We have a lot of information and videos on our website at investorclaims.com. That's investorclaims.com. And uh, just a pitch for my book coming out uh, in January called The Investor Protector. That's it. Dave, I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Jason. 